Hi, Mickey. Welcome to our first episode of this podcast titled Successful Albanians. What we are looking to convey and our mission for this podcast is, of course, to celebrate Albanian success uh, and and reach a wider audience in order to showcase the achievements that Albanian immigrants have come to realize in the diaspora. And so without further ado, would you like to introduce yourself and tell a little bit about yourself to our listeners? Hello, Ergin, first of all, and thank you very much for this opportunity. My name is Miki Haji Islami, although in English they could not pronounce X and A, so I became Haxi Islami. But nevertheless, known as Miki mainly, I was born in Peja in 1964, where I also finished my primary school and then moved to Pristina, where I studied for a dental technician and then continued with dental faculty. This is my background more or less. And uh, obviously, 1982-83, I also have to do that kind of obligative uh, military service that used to be in former Yugoslavia. And then after that, I continued with my studies. But unfortunately, the situation uh, got worse and worse in Kosovo during those years. And in 1986, actually, it became even worse. And uh, somehow I felt like probably it's time for me to leave because I could not see the future in there. And this is uh, the time in 1989 I took the step and I left the country. This is more or less my background. It must have been difficult, I imagine, at that period where perhaps mass emigration from the Albanians wasn't as, as prominent as it is today. So. As, as you know, um, Albanians or ethnic Albanians look for alternatives uh, in the West. So for yourself, uh, what was that like to take that big leap, I guess, uh, in terms of looking for a new adventure elsewhere? Frankly speaking, you know, while in Kosovo was situation very tense, still in those years, the uh, situation in other parts of uh, Yugoslavia was uh, pretty safe. However, I was convinced that things will get worse. And I wanted to use the opportunity because that passport those years could take us to any country. We needed no visa. So we were free to move. And I thought I better go and, and see uh, certain friends uh, all over Europe because we also were entitled to buy uh, a ticket, a railway ticket called Interrail, which I think exists still today. So I thought, okay, I'll buy that. And I just traveled. But I had no uh, exactly uh, indication where am I going to stay and settle. So that's how we started. First, uh, I moved to Croatia, but Croatia wasn't probably the best place because I knew the troubles may start in there too. So then I moved to Austria. Austria was fun, beautiful Vienna, but uh, not for me. Then moved to Switzerland where I had a lot of friends, stayed for a while there. And then I stopped a bit long in Holland, in the Den Haag, near Den Haag, and uh, it was really beautiful. But then with the friends from Holland, we took the uh, ship and we went to Dover, to London. And then when I went to London, somehow I found myself. Wow. I don't know why, but it just felt like me, London, felt like me. In 1989, this was. Yeah, I, I think I can echo that myself as well. I recall landing in the UK and it just felt felt safe. It felt opportunistic, you know, and sort of full of new creative ideas coming to my head in terms of what I'm going to be achieving with my future. So uh, I can sort of rec recall that moment and I, it, it, it echoes with what you're saying. So you were quite an adventurer. You were looking for new geographies to explore, new things to do. So you arrived in London, and then what? Then, tough time. Really tough, because uh, all my degrees uh, from Yugoslavia, first of all, were not recognized. So, uh, although I knew that in advance, that it's going to happen like that. But then, 
thanks to some friends, I found a job in catering. So as usual, as we all do in the beginning stage, probably. And it was very funny enough because my first job was in Japanese restaurant. And uh, the, <laughs> it was meant to be. It was fate. <laughs> and the, the, to say even one more thing, while I was in high school, I was one of those first hippies, probably in Pristina and Kosovo those years. And all I did is I had a guitar always with me and I had a bit of longer hair. And then I bought the glasses like John Lennon. And everyone used to call me Lennon, Lennon. And uh, then Lennon, as we know, got married to a Japanese as well. So this is another connection, which is very funny. But nevertheless, so in London, I worked in Japanese restaurant. And the reason why is because my roommate in London, also from Peya, Although I was more from Pristina because I grew up in Pristina, but him from Peya, I lived all his life in Peya, but he was working in Korean restaurant. And then joking, having some kind of, you know, exchange of uh, humoristic sort of issues there. And I said to him, listen, if you work in Korean restaurant, I'm going to find a job in Japanese restaurant. And then laughing and laughing. That's exactly what's happened. Just two weeks later, I got that job and uh, that's how we started. But then uh, in the same street, there was a very famous pub called Slap Harris. Probably those older generations, they remember that part. And it was a really beautiful place. And then I got a job in there. And I was promoted as a assistant manager in there. And we were a very small number of Albanians those years. We were only probably 50, 60 living all together. And they all used to come on the weekend to that pub. So it was like a gathering place for us. And we really had a good time because it was really a great place. So and then while I was working in there, I was working six days a week, actually. Because soon after, I also found a job in uh, Debenhams in Oxford Street. Because my father used to be a cobbler. And I grew up with shoes. So I knew everything about the shoes. I sold shoes since I was a child in my father's Sure. So, so then your I, natural habitat, yeah? Indeed, indeed. And I was very lucky also to obtain the national insurance number because I was at uh, the same time also as a student. I was studying as part-time and managed to get my insurance number. So getting a job wasn't difficult for me at all. So I got this job and then situation back in Kosovo was getting really bad. Uh, in 1992, they expelled all Albanians from their work including my two brothers living there. And I had something like 16 members of family that I, I really had to be concerned about it. So I was working very hard, 16 hours a day, six days a week. And uh, while I was working hard, I was sleeping in one place, uh, which is in West Kensington. And the gentleman who was the owner of that property, he was very impressed, actually. He was impressed because uh, I was very precise with payment of the rent, with keeping it tidy, everything, and all those kind of things, which to him looked like Japanese. I said, well, there are not only Japanese in Japan, there are also Japanese in Kosovo. And just imagine the reaction, Kosovo, where is Kosovo? Well, I said, I'm Albanian from Kosovo, it's part of Yugoslavia. And as British know, always to joke, to make sarcastic jokes, you know, I said, oh, we're in that place where you like killing each other. That's precisely the place. I said, although we don't really kill each other, there is only one nation probably who likes to kill others, but we mainly defend ourselves. But nevertheless, I said, that is the place. And then this same gentleman offered me to go for lunch with him. Wow, you must have impressed him with your work ethic and, and conversation. I think so. Yes. But then... I was a bit suspicious, skeptical, if I may say, because I didn't know. I mean, come on, I mean, he could be anyone. Although he was extremely nice gentleman, actually very, very, very uh, high level educated gentleman, if I may say. But And uh, then, yeah, so I decided, I said, I'll take a risk, doesn't matter. I go and have a lunch and see what does he want. And then he offered me to work for him managing the property. And uh, those days were the best days, probably in British history. Not to forget that in 1989, when I arrived in London, inflation was almost 17% in UK those years, just before Margaret Thatcher. And I was shocked, high inflation. People could not afford to pay their mortgages. 
So all that happened, collapse completely of the economy, repossessions by the banks of all the properties, confiscate them, sell them in auction for really, really ridiculous low prices. However, this gentleman that I was working with, he used the opportunity. But it was me who had to go in many auctions and raise the hands on his behalf. Those days, in 1993, came one Motorola phone, if you remember, first phone, it was yes. so heavy, as big as the briefcase, and I had to carry everywhere with me. But that was the beginning of my probably better days. So, so you, were, you were given this amazing opportunity, you were trusted, so it's quite a trustworthy role to be able to go into auction houses and bid on someone else's behalf. So, you know, you, you've got authority over someone else's finances in in some way you, you've got some sort of authority to act on it how many properties did you end up buying for the gentleman what did the portfolio look like it's it's amazing i mean when i started it was something like 13 properties he had under his ownership but there was also a group of other partners involved but 13 properties with around probably small accommodations like studio flats as we call them it was all together probably not more than 150 probably oh wow but what That's was amazing well it is but nothing compared to what's happened later but the point is that what was the problem is that i was the only one on site as well to meet those tenants and when i started half of the tenants did not pay the rent can you believe that and they were mainly coming from oceanic countries like Australia and New Zealand. And the owner had a huge big problem. And I had to find solutions, how to get the money or how to get them out. And I found a solution. What Within two years, well, the solution was simply I had to buy them off. It probably sounds crazy, it sounds probably bribing or whatever it is, but that was the only solution because they were not going to pay the rent ever. And then to go through the court procedure, you know how it's in Britain, takes forever. Eight months is just a starting point. Eight months' rent is a lot of money. So I rather thought I'd give them some money and ask them, please leave. And obviously, none of them refused that opportunity. Win-win for -win both parties. Yeah. Indeed, but what was happened by them leaving? The value of the property increased a lot. So obviously, that money that you paid was absolutely nothing compared to how much value that building gained in the market. Yes. Although we were not for selling, we used to buy, renovate, and just rent them out. That was our main business. But if you wanted to sell, for example, whew, you could make a fortune those, those years. So what's happened? I left them there. But then, continuously going and going. When I left the business in December, 2002 i had 1750 tenants from 60 different countries living in our properties and to them the only person they knew it was myself because i was on the side i was there you had sometimes japanese tenants because 400 of them were japanese actually one of them was my wife too i'm sorry probably i sound not very good this way to say but uh, used in the good way the opportunity so nevertheless what i'm trying to say the japanese because they're so connected to somebody they trust they even didn't pay the rent they went to the office there were three other people sitting there they could pay the rent they said, oh, where is mr mickey oh, he's not here they went out they just didn't say anything and it was so funny but uh, trust yeah because you mentioned the word trust trust is everything but that is one side of me trusting but i had that english gentleman british gentleman who was and who is still now one of the greatest people i have ever seen and i hope and i wish for british society to have as many people as mr bartlett mr bartlett the greatest man i have ever had the chance to meet probably in my life we all need that lucky break and mr bartlett sounds like he was the one to provide that for you do you still keep in touch Oh, absolutely. But it's because of this pandemic, I haven't been there for almost three years now. But every year I go there. And what is so amazing, I mean, the man is so decent and so nice, but he appreciates the time. And uh, sometimes we do forget how to appreciate the time enough. 
people probably who are more and more successful, they probably value that more and more. And certainly Mr. Barton does very much so. So every time I go, the first thing I do, I call him. Or even sometimes I inform him in advance. I am right now in Germany. I'm coming next week to UK or I'm in Kosovo. I'm coming to London. He said, Mickey, please let me know. Okay, well, you have to let you me are. know as well, Mickey, next time you <laughs> come to the UK. We'll do so, we'll do so, of course. <laughs> yeah. So we go there and we enjoy. But while I was in London, two or three times a week, I dined together with Mr. Bartlett. And the conversations that we had, it was just so much fun. I mean, that really uh, left a huge impact in me, in probably in anything that I have achieved. It was thanks to that part, because he showed me the right way how to do it. He taught me how not to beat your chest with things that you don't really need. Them. He told me how not to show yourself. You don't have to show off yourself. You just have to have a good life and think about others. Give others the opportunity. And that is what I did. Actually, as many as 25 people, I had that contractors that work for me. But as contractors, that is another part that he taught me. Why? Because I wanted them to be responsible for themselves. And why? Because we paid them more than usually you could get as a wage. We paid 20, 30% more, but with one reason only. So you could be responsible and pay your share to the country, to your uh, social services and everything. This was the idea behind. And I could see a lot of them who became really, really successful because they used that knowledge and they continue with other businesses too. So yeah, That's this what... is thanks to Mr. Bartlett. That, that's what capitalism is all about, I guess. So he, he, he taught you those values. So how did you then, so moving on, on the timeline, how did you come to become the CEO of your company? Well, uh, frankly speaking, when we created the company, uh, I mean, once I arrived to Tokyo in January 2003, next month in February, we created the company. And we had to have the four shareholders at that time. And obviously those four shareholders then decided that I am the one who should become CEO. And that's how it started. But then obviously later we became a bit bigger. But because I have so much responsibility and because I am probably managing most of the things better than anyone else so i get that support and uh, in japan it's it's a very different culture you know once you get that trust that trust is there forever and nobody dare to challenge that trust this is how it is very different from western society actually and then it continued and now obviously i hold also the title as a president but the ceo is above uh, everything else uh, what does your company do just if you could tell our listeners sure first of all our uh, company is called intermedico japan and we are specialized in uh, healthcare and cosmetic products we manufacture them and we sell them all around the world. Our biggest part of the business is acting as OEM, obviously by producing private brands for other huge big pharmaceutical companies around the world. And the smallest part is by having our brands sold in many different countries, but most successfully in Asia and Middle East. This is our biggest market, and we are working on it to bring more and more products to Europe as well. We were successful in several cases, but still, I think for Europe is the beginning stage. And uh, we are specialized, if I may say, on uh, transdermal technology. It means patches. Because of my background, uh, I had a huge big problem with pharmacology because during those years, our professors didn't talk enough about side effects, but they were more focusing on the benefits of those. And I always wanted to know more about side effects. And not to forget that side effects by taking tablets oral way are really quiet, normal, actually. But we just don't care. 
Yeah. Sometimes they headache. outweigh the benefits, right? There is always that damaging side. It might really have a positive effect on your headache or muscle pain or whatever, stomach or whatever it is. But uh, uh, side effects are enormous and technology moving ahead. And this technology, I was introduced in Japan in 1998. And I thought, why? still doing the old way why can't we just do it through the skin and just eliminate those side effects you have a temperature why do you need to have paracetamol what about your digestive organs what about many other things if you can just put a patch with a cooling effect you just hold it for 30 40 minutes and it brings the body temperature down at least three degrees celsius and obviously we are talking about fever. Yeah. And fever is mainly up below 39 because when the situation is 39 and above, then we're talking about uh, acoustic and sort of uh, uh, cases that has to be uh, seen by the doctor. You have to really go to physician. But uh, anything below 39, for example, it can be solved easily by using one of our cooling patch. And this really created a huge, big success, especially for children. Because remember, parents do not mind buying for children, for themselves to challenge something new. They always think twice. But when it comes to a child, yeah. you just don't think. And you see that his reasonable price is not expensive at all. Why do I have to harm the health of my child if I can just find some alternatives there? And this, how it really made a success. Are you thinking of expanding into Kosovo? Would you have any plans for creating jobs in the region of Kosovo or Albania? Frankly speaking, I was hoping trading in Kosovo and Albania. For this very reason, we, after many attempts with the uh, agreement of my colleagues as well, established the company in Kosovo in Pristina in, in 2019, November. But uh, we know what's happened after. In January, the pandemic. Mm. Everything really collapsed so fast. And uh, we ended up with a huge quantity uh, of the products and sales was almost impossible to do. Because my general idea was uh, you have those products that you bring to your own people to benefit out of it since uh, you help children of more than 40 countries with those same products why not helping your own people this was always my idea and uh, we've been actually successful in croatia for a very long time since 2008 and montenegro and Bosnia-Herzegovina, but somehow Kosovo Albania just didn't penetrate that. So I thought, okay, I'll make the company there. So I sell in there, so make it available for them, but also use that warehouse in Kosovo so we could just sell them in all other countries in the region. But how could you move when the pandemic stopped? Everything was really blocked. So the attempt was unfortunately not very successful, but we didn't give up. What's happened is that online sales somehow picked up and we sold up to a certain degree, also shipped to other countries, including UK. But delays were really bad because of the flight delays and all those lockdowns, as you know, yeah. everything uh, was uh, challenging. But certainly, we would uh, really uh, love to see the business expanding in Kosovo and Albania. But uh, nowadays, I would be far happier to work with local distributors, successful local distributors, because the range of our product is not one or two. We have talking about hundreds of different kinds of products, but you have to find a serious party. And somehow in Kosovo and Albania, we still were not successful enough to come to this level but i think uh, next year could be a new year a new challenging year yeah. so hopefully it might come up something yeah i like that very resilient mickey don't give up Never. you have to 
you have to give something back to where you've come from and where we've all come from. So one way to do that is to to leverage of our successes and in your case successful company business so you know using that and all the means at your disposal to create jobs and opportunities and create a local economy in 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 kosovo slash albania mm. so very proud to see you attempting that and i wish you all the best in in, in achieving that goal um, thank you very much I'm I'm very interested actually in the Japanese culture, the place, the traditions. I've never been. It is on my places to visit. I've only seen it in films uh, and pictures. But I'd like to hear more from you in terms of how you're finding it there. What's it like having a family in Japan? How did you transition moving from the UK? to Japan and especially from a business perspective i imagine there would have been some bureaucracies and some some hurdles you had to jump through in order to reach the point that you're currently at japan as a society itself really functions very different but uh, all my life i always wanted to see those balances of each society i, I always believe like west is so much ahead and it is for many things. But then when I moved to those Western countries, although I, I traveled even before I left Kosovo in 1989, I traveled a lot. But what I could see is all the time is that there is always that probably 55, uh, 45 balance of positive and negative things, which every society has. But then when I came to Japan, to be honest, is the only country on earth that that balance has so much in favor of positive side. I could probably say 75% of things in here are just absolutely beautiful, wonderful. A smooth machine. Indeed, but 25% is really like middle age, right? So there's huge big discrepancy between these two. Uh, whereas in Western society, you do have that 55, 45, but within that 45, you could probably find 20 to 25%, some kind of gray area, which is still okay. You could still work with that. But that gray in here doesn't, unfortunately, exist. It's very much straightforward. I understand, but it's quite hard. It's the hardest thing is the communication. Because once you don't know the language, it is just impossible to communicate been to over 100 countries all around the world i never knew that i'm going to be a specialist in asian countries but traveled everywhere in asia but i can tell you with sadness that japan when it comes to language skills is far behind than any other country you go to china they speak english you go to vietnam they speak english you go to to Philippines, they, they speak English, 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 you know, because all they do is just speak English. And so all these countries have that really advantage, but Japan doesn't. And that's why it makes it more difficult society for people to settle easier. And that also shows on a very low immigration, especially compared to European countries, Western European countries, and also United States, Canada. So it's a very low. And that is because of those difficulties for any newcomer to settle that easy because of the barrier of the language. So this was very hard. But remember, I had my right hand because I'm married to a Japanese lady. And I also had great help from my father-in-law before taking that step, coming to Japan. When I told them in July 2002 that I have decided I want to take a new challenge before I become 40. And I love these products and I want to deal with that. I can tell you, everybody look at me like I was crazy. I was like out of my mind, you know. Are you insane? You have everything. Why do you want to move? It just somehow was the time for me for a new challenge. And I live for challenges. Challenge is me, actually. So, when I told him, then, oh, they were so happy because they had one daughter, one child. And I have one son. So they had one grandson. And they wanted to I'm see coming. him. They wanted to see their grandson near them. Indeed. And I love that part because I really adore 
older generations. I adore parents. I adore uh, predecessors. I, I adore everything that has to do with the past. And what's happened is that I told him that you have to open your cards too. I really need your help. I, I cannot make it on my own. And he did. I was very fortunate. He did. But then, besides that, he did a lot of connections. Everything goes through connections, always in every society, but especially in Japan. I came to uh, meet one Japanese gentleman, which became to me like Mr. Bartlett of Japan. And his name is Mr. Taluba. And I just couldn't believe how much he really trusted me. And then by seeing me challenging and facing so many difficulties in here, he said, listen, you do your own thing. You have fantastic products. I want those products in my own company too. And we are only dealing with domestic market. Why don't we make international department? You had all the international department as well. Parallel with what you're doing, since you are the same product. But you learn inside the Japanese company how we work. It will help. That's exactly what's happening. So am I lucky? I think so. But of course, you have to look for that luck. It yeah. doesn't just drop from the heaven there. Yeah. But uh, I really was fortunate to meet these kind of people in England and then also in Japan. And six and a half years, I led that department. And after I become strong enough, then the company continued on its own. But same partnerships, everything, same manufacturers, same everything. So same group of people. It helped me enormously. But it was really unusual. Unusual for a foreign guy working for a private Japanese company as an executive. And never forget in 2007 when I met Ambassador Ross of United States, former Ambassador of United States to Japan. And uh, I was invited by uh, Ambassador of Luxembourg, a very good friend of mine those years. And then he was so impressed. You know, Mickey, Haxislami, Albanian from Kosovo, British citizen, married to Japanese, working as executive for a Japanese private company. My God, my God, I just did not expect this in Tokyo. So anyhow, so we always used to laugh. So he wanted me to meet the ambassador of the United States. The first thing that you do in Japan, you exchange the business card. It's a very important process. And the ambassador was speaking very good Japanese, actually, by the way. So I just introduced myself in Japanese way, and he looked at my business card. And he just stared at the business card, stared at the business card and looking at me, saying nothing for probably four or five minutes. I was, I was, I don't know, I felt so uncomfortable. A big man. Remember, Japan, I mean, American ambassador to Japan is probably one of the biggest positions in this country. And then in the end, he said, Mickey Haxislami. I said, yes, sir. Said, Very nice to meet you. I said, no, 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 hold on, hold on. He said, said, do you know how many foreign people work in Japan in uh, executive position? Private Japanese company. We're not talking about uh, yeah. those joint ventures and whatever it is. I said, I really don't know, sir. But what does it mean, American ambassador? Obviously knows a lot of things. Yeah. So he said, he said to me, you can count in one hand. Oh, and I was like, I start also getting a bit reddish, you know. He said, so you're saying to me, it's uh, your owner to meet me. And I'm telling you, owner is all mine to meet you, he said. Sir. And plus knowing that you are from Kosovo, very nice. And then we made that sort of like relationship. And then it was really a beautiful case, but not something that I want to beat my chest for that or whatever it is, but it was a very unique experience that I will never forget because uh, it is really hard to make it in Japan for a foreign person. I'm a little bit proud in that sense because uh, uh, you can do everything if you want. You yeah. just have to be persistent. You really should be proud, Mickey, and you, know, you are an inspiration. I have to admit, when I sort of first came across you, it was on LinkedIn. Uh, I saw quite a few shared connections that were liking and commenting on a few posts that you were posting, which included things like Albanian vintage photography. So that's sort of how I first came across you. You post pictures, uh, videos, uh, stories of notable Albanians from the past, some that I've 
heard of, some that I've not heard of. But that's what intrigued me to find out who's this guy, Miki Haji Islami. Miki is not an Albanian name. So I, sort of, I was looking a little bit deeper into you. And you, of course, your first name, your, your birth name is Mithat. And Miki is your, your nickname. So, so just sort of digress a little bit here, but how did you come to build this, what originally started as a Facebook group called Albanian Vintage Photography? And how much time do you devote it? What are you trying to achieve from it? Listen, uh, my, my biggest issue throughout my life was that no one knew our history properly, including Albanians itself, because living under different kind of regimes. We had different situation in Yugoslavia as Albanians living there. Albanians in Albania, we know very well how they live. So everything that it was passed to us more or less was modified. Or we had a lot of barricades that did not allow the news to penetrate. And this bothered me a lot. I was a child and I traveled a lot. I was a good student, good pupil. And there was some rewards. We had some excursions as a reward by having more successful results throughout the year. And never forget one case. Just want to connect this with the past. Yes. I was 13 years old and I had to go to Slovenia. When I went to Slovenia, there was a family who accepted me as a guest in their home. There was exchange. A year before, I had somebody from Bosnia coming to Peja where I come from. We had a guest from Bosnia who stayed in my house. So now the, that same uh, exchange uh, pupils uh, program, I went to Slovenia. But when I went to Slovenia, they had one daughter. And then on, on having dinner together, suddenly she started uh, speaking in Serbo-Croatian and said, I, I cannot believe you are Albanian. I said, why? She said, because we have been told all Albanians have tails behind. Wow, first night. And the parents look at her and say, whatever, Almira, please be careful. What kind of wars are those? She said, but no, this is what I read. This is what they told me. She said, no, it's okay. I told to her parents, it's fine, no problem. Um, excuse me for saying these things on this podcast, but I think probably it's a bit also appropriate to have a bit of humor as well. Yes, uh, yes. So people can laugh while they listen to this. And I said, it's true, actually. We do have the tail, but it's not behind, it's in front. And then her parents started laughing and laughing and laughing and said, that was the best answer you could you know, what a comeback. I said, yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, well, what am I supposed to say? But this is the way others look at us. And this is the wrong way. Because as British have, as Japanese have that prideness in their history, so do we. And we have a certain level of society who were so much advanced. But unfortunately, that communism has destroyed everything. And all people heard about us is from those regimes. Yeah. And if I may interject, Mickey, yeah. this problem goes way back. Perhaps you could even say in the Ottoman era, of you know, they, they colonized us. You, you, can, you can call it that in the true sense of the word. Uh, they diluted our culture. They, they gave us a foreign tradition, religion, sometimes language. And... And not just the Ottomans, but also, I guess, from our neighbors as well. You could say Greeks, Serbs, or even as far back Bul as the Romans. Bulgarians. Bulgarians. Yeah. Don't forget. Bulgarians were yeah. a very long time, actually. But uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, uh, however, but look at today. It's a miracle. We all still speak Albanian. We write Albanians. We breathe Albanians. And that, that is the most important thing because we still manage to survive, despite of directly speaking, you know, being very fair, 2,300 years almost occupations, starting from the loss of King Ghent, the bottle is 168 before the Christ. We were under different kind of occupation, but we still kept that identity. And this is something to be very proud of because no one else has done that. And this is why I'm so proud. But nevertheless, point being is that 
that past we should learn about it but a lot of things we cannot change but we have to learn why do we have to learn because by knowing the past properly without modifications we can never build a sustainable future for the future generations that's where the strength lies that's where all other countries made it but we could not make it we did not have a chance but now we do and that's why i really really want to do everything i can and use every single opportunity and make it my own business my country my culture my history so i can share with all the people around the world please have a look this is also albanian we are the ones who made the first train in the mountains of, of austria von Gega, albanian not german not british albanian we gave so much to this world but unfortunately not enough was done to bring up their identities and now we can do that and now i don't forgive myself if i don't share that information with not just albinos but all the people around the world who wants to learn more about us and see that in our society also there are differences same like in any other society and we had people the highest possible level that exists that this world has given us and we continue to give those people we gave mother Teresa in the end i mean what else can i say absolutely she is by far the most famous albanian for her good work but Indeed. all too often her background isn't brought up or celebrated only her work is and so you know that, that's that's a great shame because you know if someone has achieved so much then her story should should be presented in in, in complete in full and it sometimes the media is all too quick to write about albanians doing bad but not so quick to write about albanians doing well unfortunately the reason why is that is because the bad news is news this yeah. is how it is but now we have the opportunity we have everything in our hands thanks to technology digital technology nowadays is making it possible to spread the news positive news too so we can also feel sort of prideness and we have to do that constantly not do it today and then oh have a break of one, one month i don't believe in those things whatever i do i do it persistently every single day and how much time do i dedicate to this at least one hour of every single day of uh, my time goes to albanians at least one hour often more than that and that is wherever i may be i don't care i could be in in whatever I could be in portugal i could be in in cambodia i could be anywhere i still open that laptop and i thought okay i'm gonna post today for this i'm gonna do this for this and that group that we have created we've done it in 2011 initiated by my childhood friend in Peya, mercur Beciri. And he said, Mickey, what do you think about making this and loading a lot of old photos of Albanians in there? And, you know, one photo is what? Thousand words. So I thought, okay, it's good. Kadare could write a lot of things, fantastic, but we can do the writing by photos. And let's compete as much as we can, get as many words as possible. And today, that group has got around 50,000 members every single week. I get five, six hundred thousand impressions. People that who visit the yeah. page. Come on, I, 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 I'm not living in, in not talking about China, huh? billions of people, but for our society, which is quite it's small, big, huh? yeah, it's, it's, it's really big, yeah. huh? and uh, it has a great impact. And not to forget that the first photo in Albanian lands was made in 1858. That is a really, really long time ago was made there and what we know we didn't even know that those photos exist a lot of photos even disappeared a lot of photos were damaged a lot of photos were hidden and then a lot of photos ended up or even informations in different archives whether it is in vienna whether it is in istanbul where it is in budapest where it is in london you know spread everywhere the whole point is get them 
And nowadays you can even subscribe in those kind of digital information archives. You pay what is what is 200 pounds to pay in order to get two billion pounds worth of information is nothing. So this is really what's happening now. We have more than 120, 30,000 photos of Albania. Have you considered piecing everything together? Because you've obviously amassed quite a lot of research and it'd be a shame to just, well, well you're not going to lose it, but have you considered creating a book or a documentary of putting everything together, maybe in a chronological order or by, by industry? To be honest, this part, there's so many people asking me about it, especially my friends in the United States. There's a lot of even investors who want to invest in that. But I only have 24 hours a day. Yeah. And I always keep on asking, please, I can help you. You proceed, I provide you with anything I can, with everything I can. Yeah. But somebody else should take some kind of charge in this kind of thing i cannot do everything although frankly speaking books can never have an impact as much as digital information nowadays the whole point is how to hit as many people as possible at the same time mm -hmm. and yes you can publish that book but there will be always a limitation how many people will buy that book and nowadays it's good you can even make the book online only. You can make a digital phone book, which a lot of old books as well, thanks to archives now, are actually digitalized. And there's enormous amount of books that I publish in uh, in LinkedIn too. So sometimes I get uh, messages, uh, what is your business? Uh, why always about history? Well, history is my business. I'm a multiply orientated business person. I want to do as many things as I can because I want to use my time so I can leave something behind. And then people can benefit out of it, whether that is through medical, healthcare, cosmetic products, whether that is through history and knowledge of my country. It's always something to make you feel good because you're giving something. And we, I personally, myself, I feel obliged that I have to give. I have to give, and I will do so. Wow, Mickey, that's very inspiring. What what advice would you give to other Albanians, wherever they may be, who are looking to build a career for themselves, looking to hone in on their talents, creative talents, whatever they may be? What would you say to them? How would you inspire but them? I think what is so important is always to find yourself doing something that you really like. You have to find that point first, okay? And then when you find that, no matter how difficult it is, you have to be persistent day in and day out. problem that I came out to see from Albanians is that unfortunately as a society, especially those who live in Albanian lands, somehow they don't have that persistence. It's always like either copying somebody else, what is he doing, right? Oh, he opened one petrol station, so we all going to open the petrol station, right? So it's, it's a very sort of uh, not a proper way in business terms. So the point is that, and then once they do something, they try it, it lasts one year, two year, three year. Oh no, it doesn't work, give it up. No, no. You have to find a way how to make it. And one of the most important things is be persistent. Really be persistent. Because things will work out. Probably certain things will take longer. But as long as you do it properly, and as long as you do it decently, the benefits will really out, outnumber everything else. Outnumber the, 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 those uh, years that you have spent. Because feeling good to see the success is never late enjoying your life is never late you might spend more time probably on building something which was harder but once the result comes you're really going to appreciate and remember in japan life started at age 60. so i have an 
even started my life. I'm still not 60. So please think that way. Life is really short in one way, but the other side is that to make something stable, successful, decent, and uh, profitable, and leave something behind as well, it's going to take a longer time. But uh, really, persistence is something that you really have. So find something that you like and just start doing that and be persistent. Never give up. Never, ever give up. Doesn't matter what others tell you. I have been told over and over again, starting in Japan when I came in here in 1998, I said, oh, what are these products? I said, I never seen them abroad. He said, no, no, sir, this is only for our culture. I said, what? He said, no, other people don't understand our culture. I said, what are you talking about? You haven't done a proper marketing probably. These are products that you should be proud to share with the rest of the world. You shouldn't be selfish in that sense because you will protect so many lives by having all these kind of products, you know? And today, you know, patches, oh God. I mean, uh, if I start talking about patches in my business, I will never finish my talking, but uh, the future is patches. That's all I can say. And I'm very proud that I became part of it at the beginning point, probably pioneered in exporting these goods in the international market. We're very proud. Because now when I go to any country and I see all those products, huge big product range, including Britain, it's fine, they're not mine. Most of them, I don't care. But the culture is changing. I want to change that culture and changing the culture is the most difficult things to do. Everything else is easy. Changing the culture is the most difficult thing. And yeah. that is what I need. Remember, pharmaceutical companies, same like in all business now that we're talking, trying to transform to eco-friendly, whatever it is. You can see the challenges, huh? They're not giving up that easy. Huh? They do everything. And pharmaceuticals do. Just imagine, we produce today a cooling patch under the brand of paracetamol. The most profitable, probably, brand. And uh, the biggest income that brings to those companies and I convinced them that my cooling patch is not just equal, but is better than your paracetamol. It took me three years to provide all the information. But that is for me to be proud. Not money, not anything at all, but to help to contribute to change the culture. And by having these pharmaceutical companies involved in changing the culture, it is far easier. Because those are big players. And, but persistence. Never give up. Never give up. Every client takes three, four years. I don't care. Can take forever. I admire your passion, Mickey. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for devoting your time to, to this discussion. I've really enjoyed it. I hope Thank we can you. do it again soon. And as I, I said earlier, uh, next time you come to the UK, please let me know. I'd love to meet you in person. And, and thank you. Thank you as well.